Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 1, and we'll pick up uh, where we left off last week. Uh, we'll begin reading with verse 9, Revelation, 11, uh, Revelation 1 verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. This is the word of God. At Christmas, like we talked about last week, we, we typically and generally focus on Jesus as the baby in the manger. And rightly so. Uh, we absolutely should. When we gather on a day like today and when we get together with our families and our friends to celebrate Christmas, you'll see the, the nativity scenes all over the place and the images of the baby Jesus. And that's a good thing. We need to remember that Christ has come in the flesh, that God became a man and dwelt among us. John went on to say that we beheld his glory. And sometimes I think we need to be reminded that the Jesus of Bethlehem is not separate from everything else that the Bible tells us about Jesus. Luke 2 is not a holiday story that's disconnected from the full revelation of God in all of Scripture. The Jesus who came as a baby in Bethlehem is the same Jesus through whom all things were created. He's the same Jesus who upholds all things by the word of his power. 
The Jesus who came as a baby in Bethlehem is the same Jesus who lived sinlessly and died to bear the wrath of God for sinners. He's the same Jesus who rose from the dead on the third day after his crucifixion. He's the same Jesus who ascended back to the Father's right hand where he even now makes intercession for his saints. He's the same Jesus who will judge the nations. He will establish his kingdom, and that kingdom will have no end. This is the Jesus that we celebrate. And as we celebrate Christmas, I hope and I pray that we will not miss the glory of Christ himself. And John gives us a glimpse of that glory in the record of what was revealed to him by God when he was on this island called Patmos. He was on this island as, as an exile for preaching the word of God, for bearing testimony to Jesus Christ. And last week we looked at, the verses, at verses 4 through 8 at who Jesus is in the Godhead, that he is equal with, he is one with the Father and the Spirit. He is the I Am, the one who is and who was and who is to come. We looked at what he has done in securing salvation for sinners. He was the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. He's the one who walked among us and lived his life completely without sin in our behalf, who laid down his life on the cross to bear the weight of our sin and the punishment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven. And we looked at what he will do when he comes again to judge the nations and this week, when we continue on in this passage in Revelation 1, we look to John's visual description of Jesus. And there's a lot of symbolic language. You know that in the book of Revelation. And it's easy to, it's easy to see how John even himself has a hard time describing what he's seeing. When you look through this passage, and it really throughout the whole book of Revelation, take note of how many times he uses the word like or as it's as if even though he's writing words that are given to him even by the Holy Spirit, even these inspired words struggle to portray all that Christ is in the fullness of his revelation. Mere human words cannot describe the fullness of the glory of Christ. In verses 10 through 12 there, he says that as he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, he heard a, a voice behind him as of a trumpet. And it says he turned to see the voice that spoke with him. That's an interesting way of saying it, but you have a voice that sounds like a trumpet speak to you while you're on in exile, and you can say it however you want to say it. But he turned to see the voice that spoke to him, and he says, I turned and I saw seven golden lampstands. Now, verse 20, I appreciate the, the, the imagery that he explains for us. We don't have to guess what he means by it. He tells us. In verse 20, he tells us that the lampstands themselves represent the seven churches, those churches that received uh, John's writing, this book of Revelation, and the, the churches to whom Jesus spoke. They represent all of the churches. Jesus is present in the midst of, John says, the seven lampstands. He is present and moving in the midst of his churches. And this isn't the point of the passage, but I just want to make this note that this church, just like every other church that is a true church, is Christ's church. This is not my church. It's not your church. This is Christ's church. And we need to be reminded of that. 
He's present. He's moving in the midst of his churches if only we will see him. But then in verse 13, he begins to give this description of who he saw. The first thing he says is, In the midst of the seven lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man. Or you may translate it, or like a Son of Man. When he uses that title, he's linking Jesus with the prophecy of Daniel that we considered even last week. The Son of Man who will come with the clouds of glory. The one who will come again. Son of Man, you know, was one of Jesus' most used references to himself. In fact, Son of Man is the very thing that we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? That God became a man, that he took on human flesh. We celebrate the incarnation, that the God who existed for all of eternity past and will exist for all of eternity future chose to confine himself for a time to a human body on earth. He added to his nature humanity in coming as a baby who was laid in a manger. Maybe equally amazing to the fact that Jesus came as a baby, that he took on human flesh, is that even in his exalted state, you see John is seeing a vision of Christ in heaven, in all of his glory, and even in his exalted state, Jesus maintains his essential humanity. John sees Jesus and he sees him one like the Son of Man, or a Son of, a son of Man. He says that he was clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. The clothing that John references would remind us of the clothing of the high priest. And we know that that's how Jesus functions in his exalted state, in his role now. He is our high priest. The high priest goes to God in, the behalf, in behalf of the people, and that's exactly what Jesus does. Hebrews 2.17 says, In all things he had to be made like his brethren. He became a son of man, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Jesus became a human. Jesus came to earth to live among us because that's what it took to save you. In order for him to be an acceptable sacrifice, an acceptable offering for the sins of human beings, he had to come and be a perfect human being. And he did that just for you. As the high priest, he, he stands between men and God. But even so, he's presently interceding for us. It doesn't just point to what he did when he died on the cross and offered himself as an offering for sins, but even now he intercedes because Hebrews 7 says that he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. When you come to God in prayer, and I hope you have already today, but if you do later today or tomorrow or the next day or any day for the rest of your life, at any moment, you come to God in prayer and you have a faithful high priest who stands before the Father to make intercession for you. That's how Jesus lives and serves in his glory. In verse 14, he says, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. 
The kind of white that John is talking about here isn't like this dingy shirt I've got on. We're talking about a blazing, bright kind of white. Imagine the... Oh, listen, guys, I'm sorry. We're going to get a rainy Christmas, not a white Christmas. But imagine you get up and you walk outside and there's a blanket of snow on the ground and you've all experienced this and you step out and the sun is reflecting off the snow in such a way you can barely open your eyes. A blazing, bright, white light that you can barely look at. That's what John's talking about here. White can be a a reference to holiness. And, And certainly Jesus is holy. He's the sinless, spotless Lamb of God. The one who is without blemish, without sin. He is our perfect and holy high priest. But also let it be a reminder to us that this is Jesus' church and He demands that His people be holy just as He is holy. If you call Jesus your Lord, but you do not walk in holiness, you do not understand what it means to know Him as Lord. White hair can be a reference to wisdom. Or to put it theologically, it can be a reference to his omniscience. That he's all-knowing, he's all-wise. Jesus' wisdom is far greater than ours. No one here is going to argue with that. We don't have to be clever enough to run a church successfully. We just have to follow his wisdom and his leading and his word. He has all wisdom. We can come to him for that wisdom. But Jesus, too, in his all-knowing wisdom, knows where each member of his church is. He knows what you are experiencing, and we can take comfort in simply knowing that he knows. Christmas is a time when people get together and they celebrate, we eat food, we have a lot of fun, you reminisce. But for some of you, perhaps many of you, there's pain that comes along with it. Every family has experienced the empty chair. Every family knows some sort of grief or pain that comes along with celebration. But Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, and as your faithful high priest, knows exactly what you've experienced. He knows exactly how you feel, and he knows exactly how to minister to you through that season of difficulty. The next thing he says is that he has eyes like a flame of fire. Eyes like a flame of fire. This isn't the painting of Jesus you see in every, uh, everybody's grandma's house, right? I shouldn't say everybody's, but you know what I'm talking about. He's got the eyes like a flame of fire. A burning look. It throws me again back to, to Hebrews. Hebrews 4.13, it says, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus, with his eyes of fire, knows the innermost parts of your being. He knows the things about you that no one else knows. Theologically, we could say this speaks to his omnipresence. That he's always there. He always sees you. You know, again, it's Christmas. We sing the, well, I say we. I don't really sing it very much. But he knows or he sees you when you're sleeping. 
He knows when you're awake. I heard somebody finish that to say he'll keep on preaching anyway. It's his job, for goodness sake. (laughs) Stay awake, guys. It's Christmas Eve. Jesus, with his all-knowing, all-seeing eyes of fire, sees every hidden thing in darkness. His fiery eyes light up the darkness in every heart. There is nothing hidden from his sight. Now for his people who are walking in holiness and know him and love him and live for him, that's a comforting thing. It's a comforting thing for his people to know that his eyes are upon you. That nothing you see or know or do or experience is hidden from his sight. But that he's with you always, even to the end of the age, just as he promised. Oh, but those eyes of fire are a terror to those who are living in sin. To know that he sees you when you think no one else is watching. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. He says in verse 15 that his feet were like fine brass. You remember that messianic psalm, Psalm 110, verse 1. He says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your what? Footstool. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Bronze feet, feet of brass, that simply depicts Jesus' triumph over his enemies. Friends, we, we look at the world around us and we see injustice and we see pain and we see opposition to the gospel and to Christ's church. And it would be easy to despair. If only we could get the right person elected. If only we could get the right justices. If only we could pass the right laws. Everything would be fine. Can I just go ahead and tell you something? Don't mean to burst your bubble, but no, it wouldn't. There will be no peace on earth until Christ comes again and makes his enemies his footstool. Those enemies that look so big, so scary to people today, to us today, are nothing more than the Ottoman that Christ props his feet up on to rest. He says, feet like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. That reminds us that his judgment is hot. It's furious. It is not to be messed with. Listen, again, for those who are in Christ, those who belong to him, this is a comforting thing. I want this Jesus on my side. I do not want to be in opposition to him. And if you are living in your sin, you are living in opposition to him, and you need to repent so that you can be saved from that judgment. He goes on to say that his voice is as the sound of many waters. As the sound of many waters. Maybe that's to say it's a voice of power or authority. I wouldn't want to be out on the sea in a boat during a storm with waves crashing all around. Christ has authority even over the wind and the waves as we see in the Gospels. Maybe he means that it's an insistent sound. You know, he's on an island, and he's on Patmos. He's got the Mediterranean Sea around. He, anywhere he is, he can hear the roar of the waters. We've sort of made it a tradition for ourselves. Every year, either right before or right after Christmas, we'll take three or four days and, and just unplug from all the craziness of the Christmas schedule and go to the beach. 
And so we did that this week. And when you're at the beach, you know what? You can pretty much hear the ocean anytime you're outside. Now you can tune it out after a while. You, you know it's there, but you sort of ignore it. But it's there. John says that Jesus' voice, Christ's voice, is as the voice of the sound of many waters. It's always there. You can ignore it, but it never goes away. In verse 16, he says in his right hand he had seven stars. Seven stars. In verse 20, he explains what those stars are. He says, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Well, that just clears it right up, doesn't it? Y'all know what the angels of the seven churches are. Even that, there's some debate or discussion about what, who those angels are. The word angels, angelos, it simply means messengers. And here's just what I think, and if you come up with a different view, that's fine. Uh, these are the ones who would have gotten the message that John wrote when he wrote this book and delivered it to the churches. Uh, to say it another way, the, the angelos uh, is the pastor. I don't mind if you think I'm an angel. That's fine. The angel of the church of Simmons Grove. That's, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, the, the messengers of the churches, but whoever they are, whoever they are, the point is this, they're safe in his grip. God's people are all safe in his grip in his right hand. Remember John 10, 28, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. So whoever the, the angelos is, even if it's you, you're safe in his hand. To his, it's under his right hand, so that would say that it's under his control, his authority. And Christ's uh, messengers, his pastors, his churches, all his people are under his authority. He says, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. A sword proceeding out of his mouth. That's, a, that's where the image starts to get a little weird. I mean, you can imagine fiery eyes. You can imagine white, blazing white hair. You can imagine brass feet. But then out of his mouth comes a sword. And John tells us in Revelation 19 that that sword was for striking the nations. Revelation 19:15 he says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. You see, it's with this sword that he destroys his enemies. Oh, there's a lot of talk of judgment in this passage, isn't there? But also with his sword, he protects his people. It all depends on whose side you're on in this. Having this Jesus, this, this, this conquering king of Jesus, if you're on his side, this is a really great image to imagine. But if you stand against him, friends, if you're in your sin, this is a fearful place to be. His countenance, he says, his face was like the sun shining in its strength. This was something we got a little preview of in the Gospels. In Matthew 17, at Jesus' transfiguration, Matthew writes, He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun. His face shone like the sun. John was present for that. 
John was there on that mountain when Jesus was transfigured. He saw that glimpse, that, that peeling back of the veil just a little to see the glory of Christ. But now, in Revelation 1, he sees him in his fullness, in unveiled glory. This countenance shining like the sun in its brightness speaks to Christ's divinity and his glory. Hebrews 1 says that he is the brightness of the glory of God. He is the express image of his person. That is, everything that God is, Jesus is. Jesus is the radiance, the brightness of the very glory of God. Now, some people have this idea that they're going to die one day and they're going to step into God's presence and you'll be able to negotiate uh, whether or not they're in good standing. Um, you know, I've done this many good and this many bad. You should probably go ahead and let me into heaven because of the good. Um, but listen, friends, we live on an earth right now with a sun that's 93 million miles away and you can't look at it without burning your eyeballs out. There's no way you step into the presence of God and look into the face of Jesus that shines like the sun in its full strength without being totally obliterated. You can't stand on your own two feet in the presence of Jesus. There's no way we can stand in our own strength. We must be made right with him. We must be robed in his righteousness. And so then we see John's response in verse 17. I mean, how would you respond? You, 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 you see this vision of Christ in heaven. You see him like the Son of Man. You see the clothing down to his feet, the gold band, the hair white as wool. You see his eyes like a flame of fire. You see his feet of brass. You see a sword coming out of his mouth. And what do you do? John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I fell at his feet as dead. See, what he has described for us in these verses, what we've taken some time to look at, John saw in an instant and his legs couldn't hold him up any longer. He couldn't even stay on his feet. You see, this will be the response of everyone who sees Christ in his glory. See, I'm pretty skeptical, skeptical about people who say they went to heaven and saw Jesus and then came back and then write a book about it and make a lot of money and go on a tour. Because their vision of Jesus that they write in their book usually doesn't look like this. But you start in Genesis and you work your way all the way through Revelation and you look at every instance that someone was in the presence of God. Daniel, Ezekiel, John, Isaiah... Even the disciples, when they caught glimpses of his glory, what did they do? They fell down on their faces. Even the wise men who came to see Jesus after his birth, you read this in Matthew, what did they do whenever they come in? It says they came in and they saw uh, the child with his mother and they did what? They fell down and worshiped him. See, when you walk into the presence of God, <laughs> Let me just say this, you won't be walking into the presence of God. When you come into the presence of God on Judgment Day, you will fall on your face in the sight of his glory. Christ's glory is fearful. 
But Christ's glory can also remove our fears. He says there in the same verse, he says, I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying to me, what? The same thing that the angel said to Joseph and to Mary and to the shepherds, right? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Jesus is I am. He is Yahweh. He is the self-existent almighty God. He is I am. He is forever alive. He says in verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. I'm the one who came and dwelt among you. I'm the one who lived the sinless, perfect life that you could not live. I did it in your place. I'm the one who laid down my life on the cross to take the punishment for your sins. I'm the one who was buried in the tomb and on the third day rose from the dead. And now I am alive forevermore. Amen. Just go ahead and say that, Baptists. Amen. He says, and I have the keys of Hades and death. He's conquered death itself. The one thing that no human being will ever escape, Jesus has conquered. Death is no longer something to be feared, something to dread. It's simply a door we must walk through on our way to eternity if we belong to Christ. He is I am. He is forever alive. He has conquered death. You see, Christ's glory is fearful, but it can remove your fears. It makes me think of Amazing Grace, that, that line that Newton wrote. He says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." See, there's people in both camps. There's some people who need to be taught to fear. Maybe even some of you. You don't fear God. You don't think of Jesus in this way. This Christmas, as you consider Jesus, you can compartmentalize him to the side of a, a baby in a manger. He just feels safer that way. You feel like you can maintain some control that way. He doesn't demand too much of your life that way. You need to be taught to fear. But then there are those whose fears can be relieved. See, this Christmas, as you consider Jesus, you can see him as the Lord of heaven and earth. The one who died for you and rose again, the ruler over you who demands access and control of every part of your life. And you can surrender yourself completely to him. And as you see him in his glory, he will cause your fears to flee. You can find rest in him. See, this right here, this Jesus in Revelation 1 is the same Jesus that you'll read about in Luke 2. This is the Jesus who took on human flesh and dwelt among us. This is where he is now in heaven. And one day he will come again. This is the Christ who was born of a virgin, died on a cross for sins, rose from the dead on the third day, ascended into heaven, intercedes for his own, and will return for all to see him in his glory. 
Friends, this is the Christ of Christmas. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. I don't know how you need to respond to this passage or this sermon. But I don't think we can get a good look at Jesus and walk away without any response. To walk away is a response. So let's just take a moment now and pray. And it may be that you're in your sin. My prayer is that this vision of Christ will cause your heart to fear. And that you'll run to him for mercy. Because he will save. But it may be that you need this vision of Jesus to relieve your fears. To rest that you belong to this conquering king. Let's take a moment and pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that Christ left his home in glory to come and dwell among us. to experience the things we experience, to live life as we live it, to be tempted in every way like we are, yet without sin. That he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he experienced weakness. that though he didn't deserve to die, he laid down his own life willingly to take our sins on himself. I praise you that he didn't stay dead, but that he rose to live forevermore, conquering sin and death and the devil, and that he ascended into heaven where even now makes intercession for us. I praise you that since he fulfilled the promise to come the first time as the baby in the manger, we can have confidence that he will fulfill his promise to come again as the conquering king. Holy Spirit, search our hearts. Show us where we stand with you. Convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. For those who are in sin, cause their hearts to fear that they may come to Christ for mercy. And for those of us who belong to you, Give us a fresh glimpse of Christ's glory that we may rest in him and have all our fears relieved. In Jesus' name, amen.